How's it going, everybody? So we're back here again for another discussion-based podcast. Um, our topic today is going to be why the thoracic spine is so influential and important in our function. So we're going to get into that. I'm going to give you a slew of things of why the thoracic spine is important and maybe some quick little fixes for it or some techniques to assess or treat those dysfunctions. Um, just quick updates on a few other things. If you haven't listened to the last few podcasts, I've gotten really awesome feedback. We had Lenny Macrino who talked about baseball and his experience there. He's based out of the East Coast. Um, we had Dr. Amanda Westfall, who's a podiatrist, kind of talking all things foot and ankle. We've got some fun speakers coming up as well. We have a basketball one. We kind of have an endurance athlete guest coming up. So a lot more fun content to come. Uh, kind of, as always, really appreciate time and effort to leave any reviews or share just because, again, the goal is to try to reach out and educate and collaborate with as many people as possible. Um, you know, no financial goals in this process. Uh, and selfishly, my goal is really to network and learn from other people. So you spreading the word and helping get this podcast out there really helps me achieve that goal of educating and collaborating. So really appreciate it. Um, so let's get, let's get into it. So why do we care so much about the thoracic spine and why is the thoracic spine so dysfunctional in so many people? That's a loaded question, and I'm going to try to break it down into to nuggets. Um, so if we first get into why is it dysfunctional, if we talk about the anatomy of it, so there's a lot that's connecting to the thoracic spine, and thus its dysfunction influences many things. So we have 17 scapular stabilizing muscles that connect to the scapula to the thoracic spine and the rib cage. We have a watershed area around the T4 segment where the spinal canal narrows. There's a large parasympathetic nerve bundle where if there's dysfunction and stiffness in that area, it can lead to a ramped up system. It can lead to neural dysfunction, obviously uh, thoracic range of motion loss as well. And they typically call that T4 syndrome. Your lower thoracic spine is the primary source of rotation in your system. So if you lack mobility there, you can see how that would influence things. Your breathing muscle, your diaphragm, actually connects to your thoracolumbar region, as well as your psoas, one of your deep cores, connecting up into your lower thoracic region. And another key anatomical component of it is that the thoracic spine has a large, probably the most thick and functionally important fascial region with the thoracolumbar fascia, where basically this strip of fascia, which is like connective spider webby tissue, has so many dural and other connections to the basically the rest of the body as its primary kind of tensegrity tension system in our system is actually in our TL junction. So that and alone we can stop the discussion. You can understand why the thoracic spine's important. Um, but again, I want to get into what drives some of that dysfunction and how that dysfunction might present, right? So if we know some of this anatomy that we just reviewed, why then or how then do these present? And one is kind of some holding patterns, right? 
so we've talked about this before, but for an efficient system, an efficient system that has a trunk-first response, an efficient system that has an automatic response or feed-forward response where the proximal stability occurs before any sort of movement or there's anticipatory contractions for movement, we have to have stacking in our system or we have to have alignment. So we have to have the thoracic block sit over the pelvic cage. We have to have the cervical cranial block sit over a thoracic block. And then we also have to have the proper angulations too. So you can have the block sit over the pelvis but have a pitch to it, either forward or backwards. But long story short, if we have proper alignment, we have a proper base of support or integrity without any sort of pitch to it. We then create this system that creates almost like a soda can where it has this nice stable base because the top is below the bottom, the sides are all in a line, and it creates this inherent support without much effort, this automatic response. But with the modern world that we have today, how much we sit in cars, sit at desks, sit talking to people, uh, sleeping postures are worse, our overall activity levels are worse, leading to general weaknesses um, and instabilities, as we often get a lot of roundedness or kyphosis or restriction to the thoracic spine. We become mouth breathers. We lose some upper airway breathing quality. We become stressed. We maybe have tone in our system, both neurologically as well as holding tone, and we become accessory breathers. And what that does is that leads to inability to access the diaphragm, inability to breathe through the nose, again leading to that kind of flared rib posturing, that posterior tilt of the thoracic cage, again influencing your core's response. So we have this society that produces postures that stiffen thoracic spine. We have a society that now has promoted inherently poor habits in biomechanics, such as breathing mechanics. And we have a society that in these days, in regards to fitness, it's how hard can you push, how quickly can you work, how much can you just basically drive yourself in the ground, where we've lost a lot of that what I consider to be like the beauty of fitness of being able to simply control your body weight in all planes of motion against gravity. You know, the good old things of can you climb a rope? Can you do a push up? Can you, you know, run? And running gets taken for granted, but let's not get into that. So back to the thoracic spine. We understand again some of the anatomy. We understand why we have some dysfunction there kind of with our modern lifestyle, but then. How does that start to influence our function? So a big thing that we kind of see often, right, is if your thoracic spine is restricted, your scapula cannot sit appropriately into your thoracic spine. So the scapula sits into what would be called posterior depression, kind of down and back, and kind of articulates or sits firmly on the rib cage. And it actually even has this nice little pocket where the latissimus dorsi will sit over the inferior border of the scapula and hold it and create this nice approximation of the scapula. So then when you do upper extremity motions, it has this nice pivoting motion producing a fluent upper extremity overhead mobility. But when the thoracic spine is restricted, both with kyphosis and with how postures and breathing and things have developed, scoliosis or curves are also common. So we can have a curve with roundedness to our thoracic spine. And then that scapula, there's nothing we could do. We could strengthen the 
serratus anterior till they're blue in the face. We could strengthen the lower trapezius. We could get, you know, all these great things that we know that are effective to engage. But if we can't get that scapula to sit on the rib cage appropriately, sit on the thoracic spine, and teach the body how to control that position, we're always going to have a losing battle with upper extremity function. So. These are the people where you might look at their posture, see rounded thoracic spine, see that their system's not stacked, watch their overhead range of motion, and they have uh, shoulder impingement. They have maybe some cervical issues because their shoulder's hiking and starting to influence their cervical spine. So when you see these, even though their issues might be in their shoulder, they might be having ridiculous symptoms down their arm, start with a thoracic cage. First off, it's safe. Second, you'll probably get quick results. Let's go into another presentation, and I'm just going to start kind of listing these off, right? We said this before, but your lower thoracic spine, particularly your thoracolumbar region, is your primary region of rotation. If you can't rotate through this part of your body, you're going to start seeing dysfunctions, similar to what we just saw with the upper extremity. One dysfunction you're going to see is altered hip function. So if you can't rotate through your TL junction, where you're going to try to make up for it is through pelvic and hip rotation. So these are the people who you might see who have hip mobility and stability issues, hip impingement, gluteal tendinopathy, psoas dysfunction. You might even start seeing issues into the pelvic SI joint region. Um, they're also going to then, if you can't rotate through your TL junction, how are you going to then compete with an upper extremity sport such as baseball or lacrosse where you have to do a lot of rotation to create upper extremity throwing motions? You then could start seeing influences in the shoulder and throwing due to the lack of thoracolumbar rotation. Quick little test that you could look at for this would be a seated TL rotation. And so what I'll usually cue here, and this I think is also part of the SFMA test, but you sit elevated surface, you squeeze a ball or a pillow or a towel between your legs to lock out, lock out your lower quarter, you put a dowel over your shoulders, and you basically have them rotate in a seated position. You want to see if they have symmetrical rotation, and the dowel gives you kind of a visual representation of how much rotation is happening. Ideally, they should almost be able to get 90 degrees or face one direction. You can also bias a little bit more thoraco versus lumbar, where if you let them slouch before they rotate, it will flex the lumbar spine and force some of that rotation to come from the thoracic spine. Next dysfunction, pelvic health. Uh, being a manual therapist, treating a lot with lower quarter dysfunctions, seeing a lot of lumbo-pelvic integration into kind of lower extremity function, I often start or initiate a lot of my treatment starting in the pelvis and I would say the majority if not every single sacral dysfunction I see has some sort of thoracolumbar dysfunction that correlates with it why might you ask soft tissue dysfunction thoracolumbar fascia connects to the sacrum you have your um, obliques your quadratus lumborum even part of your latissimus all having connections from the thoracic to the pelvis again also a lot of the rotation happens through that region so if you can't rotate there you start to rotate through your pelvis so then you start to live in a pelvic obliquity or pelvic rotation so I'm not saying you would ignore sacral treatments, ignore pelvic rotations, but if you're treating somebody and you're treating their pelvis, you're trying to restore proximal pelvic floor stability proper, pelvic mobility and stability, you got to start to look at and assess the thoracic spine. 
So what are some quick, easy ways you can see if the thoracic spine's feeding into some of that pelvic dysfunction? Um, you could do a prone passive straight leg raise test, passively take them into prone extension, then go in and maybe do some mobilizations of the TL junction, see if their prone hip extension gets better. You might do a neural dynamic testing of a seated slump test, an active straight leg raise test, get in, mobilize that TL junction, maybe do some breathing to do some uh, relaxation and reducing tone to that TL junction, see if that neural dynamic testing changes. Um, those would be two quick ways to see if the thoracic's feeding into some of that pelvic dysfunction. On that note, let's get into some of the breathing. So we're on bullet point, whatever it is now. We've done shoulder, we've done rotation, we've done pelvic. Now let's get into breathing. I love, 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 love that breathing's building up so much publicity and being used so much more. There's so much benefit from the mindset component of things. Obviously, to reducing pain, improving uh, oxygen, improving blood flow. But I think breathing also does a great job. I call it kind of doing internal rib mobilizations. Breathing also helps with postural stability. It's part of what I consider outside of maybe the glottis being the true ceiling. It's kind of the ceiling of the core. So if you can't breathe, the diaphragm doesn't sit appropriately and you have no superior kind of ceiling to your core or your trunk. Um, but one thing I think we forget about breathing is where the muscle attaches. You'll see people do maybe some rib mobilizations, visceral belly, soft tissue mobilizations. But if you can get that lower thoracic as well as the kind of mid to lower rib cage to move through mobilizations, through stretches such as 90-90 shin box to bretzel to bretzel 2.0, you'll see if you can get that TL junction to improving the mobility, reduce in tone, and then you maybe flip them on their back and do some of the breathing drills that you'll get more efficient breathing and the breathing changes that you'll get will retain better. So long story short, think about thoracic mobility when you see breathing dysfunction. Quick ways to see if some of that thoracic is influencing it. Um, is you could do a thoracic mobility drill and use breathing as kind of our pre-post test. So let's say we're doing a quadruped thoracal uh, rotation. We're kind of in quadruped, child pose, lumbar locked, hand behind our back or head, and we're going to do kind of that uh, cuped rotation. If we rotate, hold, do a diaphragmatic breath, and we can rotate more afterwards, we can see a clear correlation between the breath and the thoracic mobility. You could also flip it. We could do that maybe seated thoracal lumbar rotation test with the dowel on the shoulders. We could pre-test, have them do some 90-90 breathing, have them do some quadruped breathing, um, have them do some balloon breathing. However you approach your breathing, go back to that seated TL uh, rotation test with the dowel and you see improvement. You see there's a change there. If you want to get nitty-pitty or you want to get detailed with it, you know, what's happening? Is there truly a change in that thoracolumbar motion with breathing? Are you changing tone? Are you changing the brain's perception of movement? I don't really care. If you care, I think that's great. But I think really all I care is I want to see changes and I want to keep those changes to ideally improve function. Let's do one more of these. We kind of hinted at it before, but the next one would be cervical function. Uh, common presentation we see, right, is we see that rounded shoulders, rounded mid-back, forward head posture, upper cervical stuck into extension with that elevated forward chin. 
This can then lead to migraines. It can lead to true neck pain. It can lead to... Uh, it's usually about C5, C6, excessive loading because you're living in this extension, which then leads to degenerative disc, leads to radicular issues. Long story short, it's this cascade of crap that kind of stems from that posture. But let's take it back a level. Why is that posture happening? And I think it stems from some of the stuff we were talking about before with how much we're sitting, how our habits are becoming more and more flexed and causing kind of systematic kinetic changes. But long story short is we often get that kind of mid to upper thoracic flexion stuck where we lack extension in that part of our back. And then what happens is that kind of upper thoracic region actually, weirdly enough, lacks flexion. And so what that does is you kind of get stuck in that forward head posture, that upper thoracic where it transitions into the neck starts to lack rotation. And basically it gets locked. So then we have to translate the motion somehow and it happens in the mid neck. And that's where that part of that region gets really inflamed and irritated. So some easy ways to see if we have some thoracic drivers in that cervical dysfunction. You could do a seated cervical rotation test where they're looking over one of their shoulders. You could go in and do some mobilizations with movement of doing some CT rotations where you're manually rotating that CT junction as they rotate. See if you maybe even just do some general PA, some soft tissue. Again, my point here isn't to tell you how to do your manual work or your treatment, but just to see if you treat that upper thoracic, does their cervical range of motion change? I guarantee more or less it will. If you treat that upper thoracic, maybe do a little bit of cervical stability so you retrain some of that postural alignment, axial elongation of the cervical spine, do you then go back and test their radicular strength and do you see myotomal changes in the distal extremity? Do you see differences in the upper limb neural tension testing by just simply unloading that cervical spine and getting some of that thoracic mobility in there? If you have people who maybe have some TMJ issues, maybe they have headache issues, maybe they have some of that upper airway issues where they have some sleep apnea, you get that upper thoracic to move. You get that cervical spine then to sit on top of the thoracic spine with that more efficient alignment. You're then going to be taking a lot of that tension out of that upper cervical spine as well. Again, retrain some stability in this process. And often you can see the jaw tone reduce. You can see even some airway breathing to improve. There's more to it than just the thoracic. But the point there is when you see cervical, think about addressing the thoracic. And if I was kind of recapping everything or making it seem as simple as possible, it's probably a stretch to say all the way down to your ankle. But if you're treating a, a knee, a hip, a pelvic person, think about assessing and treating the thoracic. If you're treating a shoulder, cervical, even cranial headache issues, obviously address those issues, but you got to get to the thoracic spine. And I would say the ribs and the thoracic spine, I treat more on every single person than probably any other region of the body. That's how powerful it is. Come up with your system of assessments. Come up with your ways that you can see if it's truly making a change. And that ABA model is probably the best way to do it. By that, I mean test something, do a treatment, do some sort of exercise, come back to that test. That's the quickest way if you can see if what you're doing is making a change. So I know that was a ramble there, but I think it's just really cool to kind of just go off on all those tangents of how influential the thoracic spine is. Um, 
if you want more info, if you maybe want some articles sent to you with some of this stuff, if you want some more of this content followed up through social media, other avenues, feel free to email me at nickh at capacity PT. Feel free to, again, just kind of respond on social platforms as well, but let me know. Um, hope you enjoyed and, uh, yeah, more fun content to come. Have a good one. Hey, how's it going, everybody? So we got a discussion-based podcast again today. Just wanted to update on a few things. Um, first off, appreciate everybody listening. It means a lot. I've gotten good feedback and really appreciate it. And again, if you have the time of day to leave a review, really appreciate it. Just helps kind of promote the podcast and spread the word. And likewise, feel free to reach out if there's topics you want to discuss or just questions in general best way to get in touch is just nick h at capacitypt.com um but yeah looking forward to kind of what's coming in the future some new stuff coming down the pipeline so i'll keep you guys all in the loop but today what i really wanted to discuss were what i would call maybe essentials to being a resilient runner and so this can be a little bit of a slippery slope where you start just almost breaking down the biomechanics of every single joint that you need for the gait cycle and say that's important. And you could argue that's important, but I just wanted to give some some pillars or keystone structures that need to be assessed, trained, evaluated in order to alleviate pain if you have it or ensure that pain doesn't come. Because if you have any dysfunctions, running is a little bit of a ticking time bomb where eventually the cumulative load is going to catch up to and dysfunctions are going to arise. Um, And I think all runners in some form have had some form of pain and can kind of relate to that, right? And so what we want to try to do is if you're trying to manage yourself, be proactive in the process. If you're trying to manage a client, your goal is then to be comprehensive and look at the entire kinetic chain and not just the region of pain, i.e. knee pain. So let's get into this. And what I was thinking would be good is to start with kind of a bottom-up approach just because your foot hits the ground and sometimes it's easiest just to process information that way. But this is not by any means uh, listed in order of priority of the most important structures. It's more of, again, going from the bottom up. So first structure to think about, and I'm probably going to give you a five or six here, is great toe extension. First toe, hallux does it extend and if it doesn't extend how does it influence your connective chain so great toe extension you want to see somewhere in that like 60 to 80 degrees of extension Um, if you're doing this more layman's and you're actually going to pull out a goniometer and measure it good little ways to test great toe extension is if you have them uh, stand in place you pull up on their first toe, and you want to see that toe should at least be able to clear like a 45 degree angle or halfway to 90. Looking at it in a static position like that is good, but you want to look at it underneath a tissue tension. Underneath a tissue tension position. So, what you do is as you're standing, you have them maybe go to like a 30 degree knee flexion angle, give them the cue, or give yourself a cue of. Can you drive your knees over your toes with a slight knee bend? You want to then see if there's a change in that amount of great toe extension. When you're running, the foot, particularly the plantar surface of the foot, 
is underneath a lot of tissue load, so you got to be able to extend underneath load versus more of an open pack position. If you see them put tissue load with knee flexion and you notice that that great toe extension dramatically reduces, you kind of got something you can start to start to attack or address, particularly if there's an asymmetry and that reduced or asymmetrical side is the involved side, that indicates that that might be a driver of their dysfunction. If you're trying to self-assess this, a great way to do it would just be simply putting your foot on like a, a bench, a table, a stool, where you're in more of this like elevated position. You can drive your knee slightly over your toe and again, pull up on your own big toe. If you notice dysfunction, some common things that you can do, uh, self-mobilization of the bottom of your foot or plantar surface, golf ball, lacrosse ball. You can even do it manually with your own fingers. Um, I also really like like a doorway stretch for the great toe. So you're going to be standing in a doorway. You've got your non-involved foot in the door doorway. You've got your involved foot on the door jam. You've got your great toe extended on the door jam. You then can work at extension of the great toe with knee extension and flexion. You can wind up the leg in three dimensions and angle your foot differently. Um, and I also just like simply like a, a loaded heel raise and even doing eccentric heel raises doing more of like a combination of mobility and stability to get first ray extension. Often if you lack that first toe extension, you lack dorsiflexion, so that's something you'd want to check. All right, item number two. We're going to stay in the foot here, but we're going to progress up. And something that you commonly see is poor control and or hypomobility of the midfoot. So midfoot, right, you've got your navicular, you've got your first, second, and third cuneiforms, but basically it's the transition point from your rear to forefoot. Can you go from your heel to that first ray to the distal part of the foot with control? One thing that might be opposite of what you think is there's a little bit of a pronation component to that. So as you do that transition, the foot should actually collapse. I know we typically think of the foot collapse as a bad thing. We do everything in our power to limit it. But if you can't collapse that foot, you're going to have to collapse it from somewhere else or get pronation from somewhere else, and that usually comes from hip adduction and internal rotation, thus increasing patellofemoral load, maybe driving runner's knee. But back to the midfoot is what you want to see if you wanted to see if there is some midfoot mobility is if you have them do that standing knee flexion or driving their knee over your toe, you should see the knee, uh, sorry, the midfoot splay. So that row of bones kind of widens. So if you pitch the foot, they bend their knee, you should uh, feel your fingers gap or open. The midfoot should also go distally, meaning if you pinch that midfoot, they bend their knee, the midfoot should migrate forward towards the toes. If you're not seeing play in that forward migration, you likely have some stiffness. You can also just do a self, or sorry, a quick assessment on just the bone mobility. If you push it, is there any give or play to it? Another assessment for midfoot mobility, the ability to pronate, is just a standing trunk rotation. So if you're standing, you twist your trunk contralaterally and ipsilaterally, you should see some play in the foot. So if you're looking at a foot and you twist towards that same side, you should see that midfoot supinate and open. If you twist to the other side, you should see that midfoot collapse and go towards the ground. Quick assessments of kind of midfoot mobility. There's more we can get into there, but those would be things I would start with. And again, you can assess on yourself if you're kind of assessing yourself. What could you do then to mobilize the midfoot and control the midfoot? 
So for mobility, one thing I like to do is like a kneeling dorsiflexion mode where you're on one knee, you have your involved foot forward, and you drive your knee over your toe. But as you're driving your knee over your toe, you're going to bias your foot into an inversion position, toes in. You're going to put your hand on top of the foot, and you're going to smash that midfoot into the ground as you drive your knee over your pinky toe because your foot's in this inward position. And you kind of do some midfoot smashes with dorsiflexion. You could also stand up and drive your knee over your toe and use your opposite heel to kind of smash your midfoot. All great ways to do it. I've also seen a lacrosse ball or utilize a lacrosse ball underneath the outer foot, the fifth ray, and you do that standing trunk rotation with a lacrosse ball underneath the outer foot and it helps get that pronation or collapse to the midfoot. Great ways to stabil uh, stabilize the midfoot so you don't just over pronate or over collapse is just working on single leg stability and balance. You could do single leg clock reaches, you could do foot yoga, you could do short foot exercises, uh, you could do single leg squats, single leg heel raises, all I think foundational common exercises, but can you control that tripod of the foot, heel, little toe, big toe, without excessively collapsing? That was number two. Going to number three, let's move up the kinetic chain. So common things that you see wrong in runners that if you want to have a durable, resistant, resilient body is looking at hamstring strength, particularly eccentric control of terminal knee extension at heel strike, as well as that initiation of the swing phase of that active knee flexion in mid-swing. So how might you see this in the gait cycle? So if you're observing gait, either running or walking, if they have poor eccentric control of terminal knee extension, meaning when your heel hits, can they actually keep a little bend in their knee? What you'll see is again, they won't extend the knee all the way, so they'll run with almost like this shortened stride or shortened knee, where it's in this permanently flexed position. You might see almost like a drop to that side because the knee's more flexed versus this nice smooth running cycle. Um, What you'll also see is usually the foot will start to twist because they can't control it. They'll often try to compensate with a tibial rotation. You'll also see that when you're going into that kind of mid-swing transition from contact phase to swing phase where you'll get this, we call this like external rotation whip, where as you flex, the foot will turn outward, the shin will deviate outward, and you almost get this like duck walk swing to the gait cycle. And again, that indicates that you don't have good hamstring control. That hamstring control will lead to that lateral whip, will often lead to knee pain, will lead to poor foot loading, can even lead to uh, true hamstring tendonitis or hamstring pain that you often see in runners. How do you then address this? First off with the hamstring, I don't want to go down pathway too much but it's connected to the pelvis and most often than not when you have hamstring dysfunction there's some sort of pelvic mobility and stability issue but let's just stick with the hamstring in itself ways that you want to assess hamstring mobility and strength you can do a supine active straight leg raise you can do it passively and actively assessing for neuromuscular uh, sorry neural tension as well as neuromuscular control of the active straight leg raise looking for symmetry 
but you should at least have a 60-degree passive and active supine straight leg raise to indicate that you can reach the ground with your heel when you're about to initiate contact. Um, another assessment you can do for just hamstring knee flexion strength, which I like, is what I would call like a hamstring lag test. So if you stand, lean your body against a table, and you pull your heel to your butt, if you let go of your heel, can you keep the heel on your butt, or does it drop? Inevitably, it's going to drop, but is there an asymmetrical drop where maybe it drops two or three inches from your butt on your non-involved inside, but almost drops like a 90-degree knee bend angle on your involved side? Um, another hamstring test outside of just doing hamstring manual muscle testing is the ability to control the hamstring at variable ranges. And so by that I mean you're doing your t standard 90 degree knee flexion manual muscle test. Test it with tibial internal and external rotation or toes in and out. Test in the shortened range with tibial internal and external rotation. Test at a lengthened range with more knee extension, again with variable foot positions. That way you can really bias the range and rotational degree of hamstring dysfunction. So what are some good ways to start to stabilize this? So I love the good old fashioned Swiss ball hamstring curl because you can train the hamstring in variable ranges. So you're in supine, you've got your involved leg on the Swiss ball, you start in a shortened position and you eccentrically control from a flex to a fully extend position, almost mimicking that heel strike. Um, another great exercise is obviously a single leg deadlift because you're controlling the body in a single leg, multiple planes of motion, you also have to control your foot and pelvis, so it's a great functional approach to hamstring stability. I also really like Nordic curls because again you're controlling that eccentric stability with pelvic stability and the Nordic curl if you don't know is you're in a tall kneel position. Often you need assistance manually or with a band to slowly control your body leaning to the ground without letting your hips bend. So you're just staying in full hip extension, controlling active knee extension from your hamstring in a tall kneel position. All right, stay with me. We're going to go through two more things. Number four would be pelvic stability. And we'll call that hip stability at the same point. So pelvic and hip stability, that's a huge gamut, right? But Something that we often lack is frontal plane stability, so that ability to control ab and adduction of your pelvis and hip. We lack rotational control, so that ability to control internal and external rotation at variable hip and knee angles. And then we often lack control for the runner in pelvic extension, including hip extension. So how do we tell if that's going on? So one which I think we're all familiar with is just a single leg bridge test. You should be able to control end range, hip extension, full single leg bridge for 30 seconds without rotation of your pelvis, without hamstring cramping, or without low back strain. And that common compensation pattern you see, they'll lack hip extension range, they'll achieve it through lumbar extension, and they'll do it a lot of a hamstring dominated hip extension. How do you tell if you've lacked hip extension outside of looking at the bridge test? You can do it passively with prone. I like looking at it actively as well, so I do them in sideline. 
And so by that, I mean your side lying, I'll have a wall behind them. I want them to achieve hip extension with knee flexion, so that kind of 90 degree knee extension angle. And I want to see that thigh to be able to clear midline, pushing their foot into the wall and maintain it. If they can't push into the wall and get that thigh past midline into hip extension, I know they don't have active or passive control of hip extension. Other ways to assess for pelvic stability is to almost look at segmental control of lumbar flexion and pelvic flexion. So a test you could do there is if they're on their back, they have a tabletop position with their legs, so hips at 90, knees at 90, shins parallel to the ground. Can they vertically raise their thighs, meaning thighs, knees go straight up towards the ceiling, slowly flexing your pelvis and eventually your lumbar spine one segment at a time without bringing your knees towards your chest. So it's not like a massive flexion, it's more of an elevation of your lower quarter. And you see here is that, you know, this is like a lower abdominal test, but it's also a test of flexion. And more often than not, people can't vertically raise their thighs and knees towards the ceiling. They end up having to bring their knees towards their chest because they have no lower core strength. And what that's going to do is when they get into the shock absorption phase of the gait cycle, they're going to bias into that extension holding pattern of their spine if they don't have good anterior core stability. The last thing I want to get into, which is our fifth item here, is getting into thoracic extension and rotation, in particular rotation. Your arm swing for running compromises about 30% of your running strength or speed or power, however you want to look at it. Arm swing is driven a lot by thoracic mobility, particular rotation. We sit a lot, our thoracic spines get rounded or kyphotic, we lack scapular stability, posterior core strength, and we often lack a lot of that rotation. Our breathing influences this too. If we can't breathe particularly diaphragmatically, if we breathe a lot from our neck, we end up getting in a lot of rib and thoracic spine restriction. So some ways to tell if you lack thoracic rotation, you could do a seated thoracic rotation. So hands behind head, sit, squeeze a pillow or ball between your knees, don't lose the pillow or ball, and twist your trunk. You should roughly in a seated position get about 90 degrees of rotation where you turn your trunk all the way to your right or left side. Your hands behind your head give you a little visual of where their trunk angle is truly at. Um, you could also look at uh, more flexion-based rotation. So you can go in quadruped, hands and knees, bring your butt to your heels where you lock out your lumbar spine, put one hand behind your head and try to twist with that same side showing your chest to the room. Again, here you should be able to get about 45 degrees or halfway to 90 with each twist. So thoracic mobility and stability are important then to train. So you could do some sideline rotational work like open book exercises. You could do quadruped rotational work. You could do foam roll to help assist with extension or even create a peanut with lacrosse balls and get more localized extension. Breathing exercise in the 90-90 tabletop position can kind of work on rib and thoracic mobility from the inside out. Um, but scapular stability is important for thoracic rotation as well as core and trunk rotation stability. So getting lumbar pelvic hip rotation strength. But a cool drill, particularly for runners to work on 
arm swing, thoracic mobility, and to visualize if it's influencing their lower half is you can sit in a long sit position on like a pad. So legs out straight, trunk up tall, butt on a pad to cushion your rear. And if you're sitting and you violently swing your arms, your butt should bounce up and off the ground. And you'll notice that some people, when they swing, they simply don't get enough arm swing or enough arm power, and they're not getting the pop of their butt up off the ground. So it's a good little test slash exercise to work on arm speed and strength to influence kind of lower body strength. So let's stop there. Again, we can go even all the way up to the cervical spine and shoulder. But the five things that I think that any resilient runner should have pretty good motion and control of, again, were great toe extension, midfoot mobility and control, knee flexion, terminal extension, as well as general knee flexion strength, pelvic stability, as well as thoracic ranger motion, particular rotation, control, and stability. You got a slew of tests and exercises. If you're wondering where you're at, give them a try. If you're looking at a running client in the future, give them a try. See what you think. All right, guys, appreciate it. Take care. What's up, everybody? Back here for another podcast. I'm going to be talking about shoulders today with the topic of what makes an efficient shoulder with the big goal of hopefully giving you some information to help decipher what might be causing shoulder dysfunction. Um, and then if you care to get a lot more details on how, what you can do to self-evaluate, treat, train, restore efficient function, there is a, a free shoulder ebook online as well, and I'll kind of point you in that direction when we're done. Um, but again, appreciate you guys listening. Appreciate all the feedback. Keep getting good, positive reviews. Um, we just had Jesse Ellis on. I just am going to have Jake Thompson come on, who's kind of a motivational speaker, helping kind of deal with kind of negative perspective on things. Um, got some more fun speakers coming up in the future. Also some more fun discussions, getting into more of a case discussion next time. Um, but let's start with talking about shoulders. So about 70% of people experience pain in their life at some point due to their shoulder. And the way I like to think about the shoulder is it's kind of like the knee. It's a joint stuck in a hard place, meaning often dysfunction and pain in the shoulder doesn't come from the shoulder itself. It comes from the surrounding structures similar to the knee. Um, and there's so many supporting structures of the shoulder and that if dysfunction arises simply in one region, it puts a kink in the armor and eventually the shoulder will start getting dysfunctional. And an issue people have is they'll almost do like a shotgun treatment at the shoulder. I don't know, do an internal rotation stretch, uh, stretch, do a bunch of scapular stability work. And they might be doing good things in general, but they're not actually getting specific to the cause and they don't actually get a change in their symptom. I've been doing these exercises for three or four months. I'm not really noticing a difference. I've been having pain for two or three years, those scenario. So again, the goal is to help you guys discover why the pain is occurring or what are sources of pain. If we can dig out some of the drivers of the pain, then we know what to focus on or spend our energy on in regards to the exercise and treatment. So the first step is just going over a little bit of some biomechanics or of how the shoulder joint works. So the shoulder joint's a synovial ball and socket joint, meaning um, it's kind of like the analogy they use is like a golf ball and a tee. You've got your humeral header, your arm bone is the ball, your glenoid cavity of your scapula is the 
the T, and that ball pivots and rotates in the T. Uh, and a popular way to phrase it is instead of calling it the glenohumeral joint, people call it the humogranoral joint, meaning that the humerus is the one doing the movement on the glenoid. The glenoid does have some movement, but again, the majority comes from the humerus. Um, and the goal of a lot of the stability is getting proper orientation of getting that ball on the T or getting the humerus in the glenoid cavity. And so I loosely call that centering the joint. Um, but there's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, there's four rotator cuff muscles, which we all probably know about supraspinatus, top of the uh, scapula, infraspinatus, bottom part of the scapula, teres minor, goes kind of from the border of the scapula to the humerus, and then we have the subscapularis, which is underneath the scapula. The glenoid, which is part of the scapula, is stabilized by 17 different scapular muscles and is connected. Uh, to the shoulder through the clavicle, the AC joint, as well as to the rib, the scapular thoracic joint. Um, the glenohumeral joint is influenced by so many different things, which is why it gets tricky on trying to figure out what causes it, right? So you have your SC joint, which is your sternoclavicular joint, your AC joint, which is where your clavicle and scapula meet, your global rib cage, your uh, brachial plexus, and cervical neural tension as well as even nerves from your mid thoracic you have your diaphragm and breathing quality you have your thoracolumbar fascia and lumbopelvic uh, stability and then you even have some elbow and wrist dysfunction all feeding into the shoulder so you could see if you simply just have whatever the second rib in a poor position or if you have neural tension stemming from cervical dysfunction or if you have a lack of full elbow extension you might actually have pain in the shoulder and not in those regions we're talking about. And that's actually common. You don't usually have elbow pain. If you have neck pain, it's really never that bad. But what really presents is this sharp, intense shoulder pain that inhibits your function. You could do dry needling and grasting and whatever, game ready or normatech the shoulder till you're blue in the face. But you got to get to what's really driving that dysfunction. So again, my goal today is to kind of get into some of these drivers. So we have, we're going to break down that list I just went over. So we have the SE joint, right? Sternoclavicular joint. Um, sternum, where your ribs attach, meets your collarbone, your clavicle. And it's basically one of the main ways your actual shoulder connects to your trunk or your thorax. What influences the SE joint is a lot of things. A lot of it is your cervical posture. So the people who sit with a forward head posture, get a lot of cervical fascial issues, uh, that mid-thoracic kyphosis or rounding, people who are neck breathers or auxiliary breathers all lead to these dysfunctions in your SC joint. And what that does is it causes a lot of that this soft tissue around what I call the ring of the cervical spine. So that's where your SC joint meets your clavicle, meets your AC joint meet your scapula as well as kind of your first and second rib articulating with your first and second thoracic levels and that ring if you get dysfunctional will cause neck issues but also shoulder issues because it's kind of the interconnecting point between those two segments um, but in regards to the shoulder if the SC joint gets dysfunctional it will then make a rigid AC joint it will then make it difficult to breathe it will then make it difficult to have proper neural mobility all those things would lead to shoulder pain, shoulder impingement, rotator cuff tendonitis. <clears throat> In regards to the shoulder, again, similar to the knee is when I get a referral in like the PT world for a rotator cuff tendonitis or a whatever, infraspinatus 
tendinopathy or a shoulder impingement or fill in the blank, I really don't take too much value into what the diagnosis is because I know that's not really telling me what's wrong. It's really just a way to categorize the pain, but it doesn't really give you the drivers. So if we go out the kinetic chain from the SC joint to the AC joint, a chromioclavicular joint, this joint gets a lot more publicity. Uh, it's actually kind of a cool joint. So when your shoulder goes into a kind of a posterior depression or the arm goes down and back, the AC joint will gap. Um, also, if your shoulder is going into full elevation, almost overhead and slightly behind you, it will gap. If your shoulder is coming across your body in kind of more of a forward position, the AC joint will compress. But often the AC joint can become rigid. It is the rooftop of the shoulder. If you have a rigid rooftop, that would then obviously influence the ability of the arm to kind of get all the way up because it would compress into that rooftop. If the AC joint doesn't move, the rotator cuff interval can start to get influenced where these muscles all kind of wrap around the humeral head and the AC joint can kind of grind on that rotator cuff interval. Um, and then the AC joint will eventually influence the scapula and those 17 muscles that connect the scapula. So it's a really important joint. It's actually a pretty easy joint to manipulate and get good mobility out of. Uh, a little tricky to self-mobilize, but if you have a good manual therapist around, not too hard to figure out, you'd be surprised how much better shoulder strength you can instantaneously get just by creating some space through the AC joint mobility. The next one is getting into the rib cage or the thorax or your thoracic spine. We'll kind of all call that one because it's connecting. And I would argue in regards to the shoulder, this is probably the biggest deal, the biggest driver of dysfunction, right? So if my thoracic spine is rounded, I have no breathing quality, my ribs are rigid because I have no trunk stability, so it's my only way to hold up support, I'm going to kind of end up with this really rounded, rigid base of support for the shoulder. So it's almost like creating this hill for the shoulder, which is like a flat plate to sit on so it's never going to articulate well on this hill versus having like two flat surfaces sit on top of each other if that visual helps but in regards to the ribs there's a ton of cool evidence where if you just manipulate the thoracic spine you get a instantaneous relief of shoulder pain if you work on breathing you get instantaneous improvement of shoulder internal rotation and that all kind of shows that yes manual therapy has cool power and all that but it shows that the shoulder really wasn't that stiff to begin or that dysfunctional to begin. If I manipulate your T4 and all of a sudden your shoulder range of motion instantaneously improves, I didn't have a capsulitis of your shoulder. It was a holding pattern, and I reset the nervous system to reduce that holding pattern. And I think the ribs are cool because, one, they have such a big role in the shoulder, but, two, they're pretty easy to get more efficient, where if you work on thoracic mobility, get a proper diaphragmatic breathing, maybe do a little bit of some soft tissue work, maybe start to integrate some pelvic work at the same point, and you create this nice, calm, mobile environment for the ribs, um, it'll allow the scapula to sit appropriately on your thorax. It'll allow the shoulder to rotate better. It'll help reduce neural tension. Uh, it's just such a huge area that I think of any region in the body, I probably treat the rib thoracic spine region more than any other part. And we've kind of talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, but ribs are cool. If you want to get into the biomechanics, you can, but you know, they'll elevate and depress. They have like a bucket tandle uh, motion where they kind of go out and up and in. There's rotatory. There's even sagittal and frontal plane motions as well. So they have a lot of dynamic movement to them, and you, there's a reason for it, right? Because they have such a big role in our function. So if you create a rib, rigid rib cage, you can see how that would influence your shoulder. 
kind of piggybacking on your ribs in regards to shoulder function is breathing quality. So breathing, right? So your diaphragm main breathing muscle. Breathing is also based on intra-abdominal pressure. So having your like pelvis under your thoracic cage, having appropriate um, anterior and posterior core stability, frontal plane core stability. So you have this nice three-dimensional cylinder of pressure to create proper breathing. But often the ribs are dysfunctional, like we just talked about. The diaphragm isn't working that well, isn't as efficient as it could be, and you kind of become an accessory breather. You breathe through your neck. You end up getting rotations in your trunk because you're not breathing efficiently. You end up starting to get rigidity in your thoracic region. All that does is that sets up that oh-so-common shoulder posture of a forward and superior shoulder, or I call it kind of the shoulder getting off place. And if we want to then raise our arm up over our head, we're going to be initiating movement from a dysfunctional orientation or position and thus setting ourselves up for impingement. Again, another aha, wow moment. You get breathing better, you immediately see better shoulder function, and you can kind of use that as a little test, retest. I think the next one's a little trickier, is getting to the neural dynamics and how they influence the shoulder. Uh, trickier one to diagnose because there's so many different nerves and how it drives. But usually neural tension develops from a mechanical dysfunction. Either, we'll say in this case, your region of your neck is hypermobile, moves too much, or it doesn't move enough, maybe a history of whiplash. Somehow there's a mechanical fault where the nerve leaving the spinal cord through a segment of the neck is impinged or restricted. That nerve then is like a piece of floss, right? So if I have this nice loose piece of floss that goes from my neck all the way down into my hand and I create tension on the beginning of the floss, could you visualize then how it would be hard for that rest of that floss to course through the rest of your body? And so what happens is that nerve, right, it's part of your body, part of movement. If that nerve has impingement or tension, it's going to influence the whole extremity's movement. So something that seems simple as like a cervical radiculopathy or a cervical issue can actually limit abduction of your shoulder, can limit elevation of your shoulder. And actually a quick, easy way to see if you have some neural tension driving your shoulder dysfunction is what I call like a walling shoulder abduction test. But basically, you lean against the wall, you get make your spine flush with the wall, and you slide your arm up the wall in a pure abducted position. And you'll notice if you have dysfunction, you'll often lack full abduction where you can almost get elbow to ear going in a sideways motion up the wall. And that usually correlates to neural tension because that's kind of the main driver in that position. Neural tension not only can limit mechanical mobility or mechanical capacity, but can also limit neuromuscular control. If I have this irritated nerve, this nerve that's not working, a nerve that's constantly in an inflamed state, it's not going to send the nerve signals as quickly as they once did, and you, what you get is called fatigable weakness. So let's say it's C5, C6. C5, C6 controls uh, a lot of the shoulder muscles, controls rotator cuff, a little bit of bicep. What you do with fatigable weakness is that nerve might be able to produce one quick rep, but as you do more and more reps, it gets more and more fatigued. That fatigue then leads to poor positioning of the shoulder, obviously weakness of the shoulder, impingement of the shoulder. So neural tension can kind of drive both the mechanical ability as well as the neuromuscular control. So big deal. So that's why when you're doing a shoulder evaluation got to get as subjective of any neck issues any neurological symptoms as well as getting into some of these objective things two more areas i want to hit on so the next one would be 
kind of your thoracolumbar region, in particular your thoracolumbar fascia, which is awesome if you ever can see a picture of it. But basically has connections through the latissimus, even hitting the inferior border of the scapula. It's obviously going to go all the way down into your pelvis, attaches right into a really thick fascial component right where your uh, thoracic region meets your lumbar region. Um, But this fascia is a primary stabilizer. can often lead to restrictions, often correlates or happens at the same time as we'll call it quote-unquote core weakness. But what this fascial and core weakness combination will do is the fascia will drive the scapula out of place and drive some poor positioning of the shoulder, leading to impingement. But the weakness, similar to the ribs, but the weakness of your trunk leads to that inability to produce force. So the common you know, saying that everybody will say is you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. So I can't produce shoulder force or shoulder strength if I have no base to work off of. So getting into some sort of core assessment and core function, some sort of thoracolumbar mobility assessments, as well as mobilizing, assessing the thoracolumbar fascia all play a big role in your shoulder function. The last would be your elbow and wrist, and this becomes a little bit of the chicken versus the egg, but what I've seen a lot clinically is the people who maybe lack end range overhead elevation or maybe have impingement of the shoulder have associated or ipsilateral lack of elbow extension. Now, is there neural tension limiting the elbow extension, which leads to shoulder pain, or is there shoulder pain that leads to compensatory elbow flexion so the shoulder doesn't get in a compromised position? I don't really know. But getting that full extension of the elbow, full extension with abduction and flexion, will often reduce tension that's driving up into the shoulder and create a more stable, more efficient environment for the shoulder. Likewise with the wrist, right? So often you'll lack wrist extension. If you can't extend your wrist and you're doing a push-up, you're likely going to elevate that shoulder up into your ear, round your shoulder forward in order to try to achieve the motion. Your your body's always going to go to the path of least resistance, and usually your shoulder is going to be what compensates for that. So, a lot to swallow there. But things that can influence the shoulder, and I'm very likely missing a lot, but you have your SC, AC joint, rib cage, breathing, neural dynamics, thoracolumbar region, elbow, hand, and wrist, um, and obviously the shoulder itself, including the ability of the glenoid and the ability of the humerus to fully rotate in all three planes of motion. And usually that capsular mobility, you're going to see if there is a restriction, is more that posterior inferior part of the capsule that's needed for internal rotation, extension, overhead range of motion. Um, so that's kind of a shotgun into what are some possible drivers or influences outside of life habits of your your posture, your workout, your routine, whatever you're doing, maybe stresses, but I'm just talking pure biomechanical drivers of shoulder dysfunction. If you want way more info on this, uh, I do have an ebook online. If you go to capacitypt.com and you go to capacity edu, there will be a free shoulder ebook. Ebook's cool. It kind of takes this biomechanics to the next level. For each biomechanical issue, it gives you a self-test to do. For each biomechanical issue and self-test, there's correlated exercises you can do. So it's just trying to be like a step-by-step pathway to fixing your own shoulder. It's beefy. It's not meant to read the whole thing. It's meant to kind of go down a certain pathway of whatever your issue is. So check it out. Uh, Again, leave reviews, share with other people. Appreciate any reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you're using. But uh, 
enjoy and more fun content to come. Take care. How's it going, everybody? Back here for another discussion-based podcast, and we're going to be talking about hip impingement, and we're going to be breaking down a case scenario where we try to get into some of the biomechanics, some dysfunctions we see, some correctives to do, and just use a case scenario to describe or manage you know something we see pretty often in the clinic and also in the the training setting um update on a few things we got some fun interviews coming up so i have zach long who's kind of the barbell physio we're going to be talking about bridging the gap between pt and uh power lifting and barbell strength training also got charlie weingroff coming up and we're going to be reviewing some of the new content he just created a new like acl course so picks his brain on that so two kind of big names fun people to talk to so stay tuned for that uh do have the own brick and mortar location open now so if you ever if you're a clinician and want to come up and shadow and hang out feel free if you're ever in need of care or treatment feel free to reach out or know people who do love to help love to mentor love to kind of build the community so let's get into to what we're talking about today so hip impingement what is hip impingement to be general or kind of broad with it it's when you bring your knee up into your chest you get a pinch in your hip um and we originally thought and it's still an issue but we thought you know oh if you have hip impingement you have a cam or a pincer impingement which basically means you have bony overgrowth on one of the two articulating structures of the hip either on the acetabular rim on the femoral head neck junction you take the hip into end range flexion or moderate end range flexion those bony abnormalities run into each other and you have hip impingement <clears throat> that is the case but probably early 2000s early 2010s we saw anybody with hip impingement oh you've got this bony impingement and you need to have surgery i had the chance to work at <clears throat> the stedman philippon institute where philippon was one of the big pioneers of this and i saw i don't know hundreds of post-op hip scopes clearing out fai symptoms um and retrospectively i bet you a lot of those people could have done a whole lot better long term without actually having surgery to begin but that's neither neither here or there but i like to think of <clears throat> hip impingement being similar to shoulder impingement right it's not like if you have shoulder impingement you go in and have surgery and shave off your acromion we once did but we don't do that anymore now we realize that what's driving the shoulder dysfunction we try to address that the same thing goes with with the hip so if we think about the hip right what can drive impingement it can be a range of motion loss of the true hip capsule and hip mobility it could be a hip stability loss meaning the ability to control rotation flexion extension abduction lost core stability loss so if you've lost trunk stability, core strength, when you get into squat patterns, you're going to end up losing your spinal integrity, pitch into lumbar extension, typically then leading to a nominate anterior rotation or anterior pelvic tilt, which will close down and narrow the hip and cause, excuse me, hip impingement. Um, also is thinking about below the kinetic chain. So if I lack dorsiflexion in my ankle, I'm gonna be limited in triple flexion. That limitation in triple flexion is gonna drive compensations up the chain and can lead to hip impingement and a lack of squat depth. Another one you might not think of is a lack of thoracic extension. Particularly again, if you have someone who's doing more maybe 
powerlifting, squatting, CrossFit stuff, if they're trying to do more of a goblet squat, an upright trunk orientation squat, or even the FMS, the deep squat, you have to have thoracic extension, range of motion, and stability to maintain an upright trunk. You lose that, the trunk pitches forward, you narrow down the hip, and you can lead to impingement. And with a lot of these cases... It's not like, oh, you just have this one thing, you do this once and you impinge your hip, but it's years, months, whatever, a long period of time of dysfunctions that brew and eventually the hip just starts to show and kind of present as pain. And the last one, which is maybe even the most important one, is pelvic dysfunction. Pelvic floor dysfunction will lead to neural tension in the hip. It will lead to rotation weaknesses in the hip. Um, basically, you're losing your, your flooring of your core. When you lose that flooring, you lose stability, and again, you're going to get compensations and often impingements, particularly if you have bilateral impingement, obviously in a female, but also in a male. you got to start thinking about the pelvis and the pelvic floor. Um, the pelvis is also part of this, right? So if you have a nominant or sacral or even lumbar mobility losses, it's going to drive compensations into the hip. So all that being said, let's start to break this down even a little bit more. What happens with a normal hip, right? If you're getting into hip flexion and then we're going to break down a case. So the normal hip, right? You roughly have, there is no normal range, but you know, you have a range maybe 130 to 150 degrees of hip flexion, knee to chest. And there's something called the Hissel test. But with the Hissel test, what you're doing is the first portion of that motion primary just comes from the hip, then a little bit from the innominate, then a little bit from the sacrum, then a little bit from the lumbar spine. And in general, good goals are roughly the first 110 or so should be from the hip itself. So if you're getting hip impingement at a, a 90 degree hip flexion angle, you're not even getting to the point where the pelvis needs to assist the motion. And thus you probably do have a true hip capsule or a hip isolated issue. If you go past 110, roughly 110 to about 130 degrees, you are mostly getting a nominant motion. If you go 130 to 150, that's mostly sacral and lumbar, and everything over 150 is lumbar flexion. And it's good to think about this sequencing because depending on where their hip range of motion loss or their pinch presents might dictate which segment or which part of that flexion is lost. Um, we think about the butt wink, which is basically if you get into a squat pattern and you break a certain degree of squat depth and you see lumbar spine rounding of the trunk, rather than hip flexion that usually indicates, again, compensation. But inevitably the lumbar spine is going to have to round at a certain degree. So if you're going butt to the floor, there's really no way the hip has the capacity to do that motion without lumbar flexion. But if we break down the butt wink a little bit more, we think butt wink, again, rounding of the low back as you squat is, oh, you have a hip range of motion loss. And I probably actually see more with butt winks as actually a core or trunk stability issue. So I'll see if I prop up the heel, which offsets the kind of counterbalances the trunk, making it easier to stabilize your trunk. You squat and that hip impingement or the butt wink will go away. Or if you assist the squat pattern by holding a suspension band or a cook's band or something to unload the pattern and they get to that depth without their low back rounding or without the butt wink, you know it's a stability issue. <clears throat> so if you unload or make the pattern easier and the butt wink goes away, you know that's not a hip range of motion loss. Because if it's a hip range of motion loss, it doesn't matter 
what you do to assist it, it's always going to be stuck or lost at a certain degree. So let's try to break down an example of a case scenario, how it might present in the clinic or in the training room, and what you might do to initiate treatment and what are some maybe good goals for this client. So I think an obvious one would be going over something like a CrossFit athlete. But what if we talk about a runner, right? So runners get hip impingement a lot. And they're getting hip impingement not because of repetitive end range flexion, but because of gross dysfunction in their system. By that I mean, you know, common issues with runners is they'll lack hip rotation and extension control, they'll lack core stability, they'll often lack hip extension range, thoracic range of motion, the whole gamut here. So then when they're going through their running stride, they're doing repeated loading, they're not doing it from their trunk and the proper sequencing of muscles, and they tend to dominate with your phasic muscles or your big drivers or movers. So your rectus will drive it. Uh, even your QL will start to get involved. Um, your TFL will start to get involved. And so what you get is this muscular tension holding pattern around the hip joint. What that does is it offsets that hissle or it offsets that flexion mechanism that we're used to. And so you are running, you're doing repetitive loading, you have dysfunctions, weaknesses, either mobility or stability based, and you, pre you develop a hip of a guarded hip, a hip of, a hip of tension, neurological holding, something that's just like freaking out because the load you're putting through it is too much and so it's in a guarded or tensioned state. You then ask that hip to flex, i.e. get in and out of a chair, bring your knee to your chest. Um, maybe this runner actually is doing strength work as well and they'll get hip impingement. Um, so where do you start with this runner, right? First off, if you have a runner that you're training or treating or whatever your profession is, you got to watch them run. As long as it's not acute, hot, you're going to cause immediate pain or cause inflammation. Running should be one of the first things you look at because that's often what's dictating it. So let's say you do a gait analysis, you pick up some things. Um, again, you're just noticing that general trend of poor hip and trunk stability um, and in general, poor thoracic mobility, poor hip extension, some standard runner presentation. I'm not getting into too much detail there because I more want to talk about just management of hip impingement cases. Um, the common tendency is if you have a pinch with flexion, okay, I'm going to put a strap in your hip and I'm going to mobilize flexion until that flexion goes away. But what I like to visualize is first you want to try to get the joint on axis or centered or in a more efficient state or more restful state. So often if you restore rotation of the joint, both internal and external, get the rotation to become soft and supple at the end. Sorry, excuse me. If you get that rotation to be soft or supple at the end, that rotation creates capsular mobility in 300 to 60 degrees, and it also creates the hip to be in a more neutral resting state. You then take the hip up into flexion, and you'll often have the impingement with flexion go away without actually addressing flexion itself. Um, and this actually holds true with the shoulder, too. There's evidence that supports for every degree of external rotation you get, you get two degrees of flexion. So instead of mobilizing into an impinging inflammatory position, mobilize in positions that don't cause inflammation or pain, but also improve the motion of emphasis. So one, get rotation restored. 
two is get abduction restored. Abduction is important for two reasons, several reasons, but one reason would be getting that inferior medial capsular mobility. It's something we often lack and something that we need to restore hip extension, range of motion needed in the gait cycle. Gait involves hip extension, abduction, internal rotation at the toe-off phase. Um, so again, helping with getting capsular mobility in a position that's not impinging will indirectly help that flexion or impinged position. The other is we often lack, especially if you're a runner, you lack frontal plane and hip st uh, stability. So if we are going to be trying to strength train lateral movements, frontal plane, glute med, glute men, whatever gamut you have for frontal plane stability, you have to first have the motion to strength, right? It'd be me like strengthening overhead positions from my shoulder, but not being able to get my arm over my head. You got to mobilize or restore the motion before you stabilize. So long story short, don't just go to flexion and mobilize it. Get the hip in its entirety to be more efficient. The flexion will probably resolve and it'll set up an environment to make stability easier. The next thing you got to do is you got to drive into low back and pelvic efficiency. Again, with hip impingement, usually you're going to be having some sort of soft tissue holding of your psoas, your rectus, your iliacus. That's going to start influencing your lumbar spine. So do they have the ability to touch their toes? Do they have segmental flexion of their lumbar spine? Do they have it both actively in maybe a standing position or an active straight leg raise as well as passively? You also want to be able to ensure posterior chain elongation. So again, from the previous talk, we restored hip capsular mobility. So we know the first chunk of the hip motion is going to be clean. We restored lumbar flexion, or basically flexion of the lumbar and pelvis, both actively and passively. Now if we get into kind of restoring the posterior elongation of the soft tissue structures on the backside of the hip, that's going to, again, create easy access and allow you to strengthen the anterior structures needed for hip flexion control. So when I think of posterior structures, I'm thinking of like the gluteal interface, I'm thinking of hamstring attachments to the ischial tuberosity, I'm thinking about sciatic nerve, pudendal nerve, piriformis, the list goes on and on. <clears throat> but that posterior elongation is really crucial to get hip flexion. So in my first day of treatment, I might be doing some active elongation where if I'm strengthening the front of the hip, I'm lengthening the back of the hip, so I'm doing like neuromuscular control and stretching at the same time. I'm doing some rotation and abduction mobs. I'm doing some neuromuscular re-education into flexion in an impingement-free range. I'm maybe doing that supine or even sideline, depending on how irritated they are, and that's my day one treatment. I've improved hip motion, and I've got them stabilizing the new motion that I just gained. They come in for treatment, too. I'm hopefully getting them off the table, getting them moving, and I'm going to be loading hip flexion. I'm doing maybe eccentric isometric goblets where I'm doing slow descents with load into a hip flexion position at the bottom of that pattern, doing nice prolonged holds and doing isometric holds, getting like a capsule or a stretch and strength into hip flexion range of motion. Uh, I'm also going to be then maybe getting into some of the running gait training, cueing a forward lung trunk lean, cueing rib cage positioning so they're not overextending from their spine. And so I'm getting more into these second and third treatments of weighted end range capsular mobilities or hip flexion ranges of motion. And then I'm getting into their functional training, one, to get them back to do what they want to do, but two, 
when they get back to run or whatever they're doing, I'm ensuring they're not doing patterns or positions that are causing inflammation and going to make them regress. And then the third phase is to then teach them lifelong strategies of staying fit. So you got to be for this runner teaching them maybe some pre post running activation, stretch stability exercises to make sure that the counters of the negatives of running or repetitive loading are being counterbalanced appropriately with stability. So the system can withstand the loads. Um, I'm teaching them some strength and conditioning work, particularly probably some barbell, kettlebell, dumbbell work. So I'm loading the system, creating a more durable system. But again, towards the end of this plan of care, I'm trying to teach them self-care strategies so they can fix themselves, manage themselves, and stay healthy as long as possible. So that's a lot of swallow, a lot of information. But just to sum it up a little bit is when you're dealing with hip flexion or hip impingement, don't just think it's the hip. When you're starting to restore hip flexion range of motion or try to get that impingement to go away, start with the hip, start in impingement-free zones, and progress from there. Hip impingements can be tricky, again, especially in those like pelvic floor, complex pelvic coccyx issues, maybe people who have uh, incontinence, because you start to get bilateral holding patterns, things start to get complex. Um, so don't be frustrated by those cases and take your time and refer out if it's appropriate. Um, hopefully you got a good little nugget or two about some hip function there. Feel free to DM, message, email, anything if you have questions or if you want to talk through cases. Uh, but enjoy and more fun content to come. Take care. All right, so we're back here talking about assessments today. Uh, it's going to be a discussion-based podcast, and I want to just give some insights, obviously, on some assessment pillars. Um, but before we get into that, I always just appreciate you guys listening. I've gotten, again, good feedback. Keep feeling free to reach out with any questions or concerns. Um, but again, as we kind of go into the, the year 2021, I always want to try to provide content that I think you guys find interesting and obviously valuable. Uh, again, with the big goals of trying to be practical as well as providing insight or maybe some unique viewpoints. So, for instance, we had a PT slash strength coach on. We had more of like a barbell athlete-related PT, and we had a pediatrician on in the kind of last three interviews, which I think is a cool diversity. Um, but back to the, the matter at hand is we're going to be talking about assessments today. And this is something I know since starting uh, being a new grad or a newer PT to where I'm at before is my outlook has completely changed. I think right after school, it was very isolated, localized, tearing out different glenohumeral ligaments to you know, each capsular direction of the glenohumeral joint. To then I got more integrated and more whole body, but started going down a rabbit hole of just looking at too many things and almost just the idea of looking at things to look at things without actually using them, right? So you don't want to be doing any sort of assessment or test if it's not going to be changing your plan of care or program design. Um, I think that can be hard sometimes, right? Sometimes, again, you're just assessing to assess and you feel like you've got to look at all 27 you know, whatever hip tests that you could think of, but really, what are you really getting out of it? 
Um, and so what I wanted to boil down today are what I believe to be maybe five assessments that I could look at and call it and feel like I know what to do with the client, know what to do with the patient to either get them pain free, to improve their movement efficiency, or start to load that system and truly get strength gains. Um, with that being said, there is a time and place for obviously getting into more detail. If you have someone with a, a chronic pain, complicated history, that you really need to dive into like what is the true driver of their dysfunction, there's going to be more to it. Likewise, if I have someone who's pain-free and just performance-minded, I might do just a simple performance battery of tests that's a little less PT-based. But in general, these little five different assessments I want to go through with you today, I think you could do on any one and leave with some good info. Um, so again, I've said this before, but what are we trying to get from assessments, right? We're trying to get um, what is the mechanical capacity? What are the joints? How do they move? Nerves, muscles, tissues of all varieties. We're also looking at for neuromuscular control. How does the body actually initiate, produce force? What is the endurance? What's the relaxation like? And again, the last pillar there being what is the motor control? What are their movement patterns? What are their holding patterns? What's their posture like? And looking at all three of those, I can obviously find drivers of pain, find drivers of movement dysfunction, but also let them know or determine if they're ready for what I would call like the fourth pillar of performance. You might be able to hinge like a boss or do deadlifts like a champ, but can you actually carry that over into a triple threat position in basketball? Or can you carry it over to uh, the stride length you need to run up a hill at mile 17 of an endurance race, whatever the scenario may be? So let's get into these tests, right? So we've got that mind. Okay, I'm looking at these different components. This is what I'm trying to figure out. If we wanted to maybe start lower body, obviously the first thing I'd want to look at with everybody is gait. You know, and we typically look at gait, maybe looking at, okay, they sprain their ankle. What's their ankle look like? But you've got to start looking at it integrated. By that, I mean if I have a neck patient come in, I'm actually having them walk, which might seem counterintuitive, right? But if I have someone with maybe chronic facet syndrome on one side of their neck and I watch them walk and I can tease out if they have pelvic mobility issues, maybe they're standing with a side bend to their trunk, that side bend is going to then pitch their neck into an abnormal position. So if I'm just simply getting them on the table and assessing localized structures, I'm going to be missing, again, that integration of the body. And the gait is probably the best way to do that, right? So again, I can look at gait, I can assess pelvic mobility. At toe-off, are they getting that posterior depression of their pelvis? At swing, are they getting their anterior elevation of their pelvis? What's their breathing and holding pattern? Do they have arm swing? Obviously, I can look at a joint-by-joint joint assessment of you know, what's going on with the foot at heel strike versus toe-off and so on. But I'm probably the big things I'm looking at are for pelvic mobility, both rotation, flexion, extension. I'm looking for rib cage mobility, including arm swing. And I'm looking at like integration. So like how is the foot integrating into the pelvis, integrating into the shoulder. So when I'm doing a gait assessment, I'll be looking globally where I'll try not to look at any structures and just see global movement. And then I'll try to zone in, okay, I really think something's going on with this right side. So then I'll look at the right hip, right pelvis, right foot, and start to get more local with it. If you try to take it all in at once, it can be a little overwhelming. So another one I like to look at, so we'll call this test two, would be like a standing toe touch. 
Um, you know, this is obviously a test for like posterior elongation or just does from the base of the occiput or back of the skull all the way down to the heel, does it have the capacity to lengthen? Another way to say it, does the front side have the capacity to shorten or stabilize? I think we all understand that, but I think there's a lot more we can pick up from a toe touch. One would be the idea of someone who lives in maybe a compressed inhalation state, where maybe they're arched, they're lordotic, they're extended, they're forward head, versus someone who maybe lives in a flexed, rounded, expanded, maybe exhalation state, which is a little less common but does exist. So if I'm watching the toe touch and I see that they're holding their breath, they're not rounding their thoracolumbar region, they're not able to keep their chin to their chest, they're very likely living in that inhalation extension posture, and this is something I can pick up from the toe touch. Also from the toe touch, I can pick up the ability for segmental flexion. So does T4 have the ability to flex as well as L1? Does the hip and the sacrum have the ability to flex just as well as the mid-thoracic spine? So I can see regions of skipping and know those are regions of dysfunction. This is also a great way to assess lower body neural dynamics. So if you go into a toe touch with maybe their head in an extended position and you do it again with their head flexed or curled and you notice they reduce range on their toe touch, they likely have a neural driver. And you can also just do a quick breathing assessment here, right? So we talked a little bit about inhale, exhale, but if you go to the toe touch and then you cue some proper breathing of uh, whatever your cues are in through your nose, out through your mouth, tongue to the roof of your mouth, maybe it's tempo breathing like a 4-4-4 count, whatever breathing cue you want to give or coach and you notice that their range increases, maybe their symptoms reduce, it shows that maybe breathing plays a bigger role in the movement than the movement itself. So just with gait and a toe touch, just those two tests, I've already assessed pelvic mobility, foot ankle loading, breathing, lower extremity neural tension. I'm assessing integration of kind of upper quarter to lower quarter just with two tests, right? I could get them on the table and I could do a, a Thomas test. I could get them on the table and do a, I don't know, a Lachman test on their ACL. I could do maybe a GERD test on their shoulder. But all that stuff's very peripheral and actually is probably being influenced by everything we just talked about. And it's that idea of going central to distal, kind of proximal trunk, spine, and then getting distal after that. Kind of get the chicken before the egg debate going. Um, what's another thing we might look at is the squat. So again, you could look at single leg squats, lateral squats, rear foot elevated split squats, but I just for a shotgun approach where I can just pick up a whole bunch at once is just a standard bilateral squat, right? So here I can pick up control of triple flexion, uh, pick up what we would call like knee and ankle tracking. So as the knee and ankle flex, as their rotations in the femur, rotations in the tibia, are there compensations in the foot ankle where maybe it supinates or compensates into pronation? You also can pick up thoracic mobility and stability with a squat, where if they can't maintain an upright trunk or maybe they start to flex their low back at a certain range um, or they start to really keel their trunk over, it can actually be indicative of thoracic mobility issues. It can also be indicative of core uh, hip stability issues. You can pick up ankle mobility issues where you can see the lack of dorsiflexion or getting into the heel or getting that positive shin angle that you would look for with a squat. And then I think another big thing, again, is continuing to pick up that kind of 
extension or flexion or living an inhalation or exhalation posture and you'll see as they flex usually they'll try to compensate going into the opposite so they'll be extended and they'll go into flexion or vice versa and then another thing about squats is looking at kind of static versus dynamic postures okay this is where they start this is where they finish do they have the ability to accept weight into their pelvis and lower extremities or are they doing a holding pattern do they have the ability to dynamically shift their weight and maintain that proper stacking and alignment that we'd be looking for so again, with the squat, you really can tease out every joint of the lower quarter and also tease out things in three planes of motion, tease out more breathing. So awesome. So again, squat, standing toe touch, as well as gait are really three lower body, lower quarter assessments that really could give you every bit of info you would need to build a program or a plan of care. So then what would we do for upper quarter? And again, I wanted to just go over two more things that again... You did all five of these, you could do a total body test, get a really good idea of what's going on in minutes of time here. So one would be looking at cervical rotation. So think of the spine as one unit, right? So if I have a mechanical dysfunction at L4, L5, let's say I have a spondy that's influencing my nerves, influencing my dura, my fascia, my spinal cord and that dura, there's one piece. So if I have tension at the bottom of my spine, it's going to influence tension at the top of my spine. So it's kind of crazy to think about, but if I have lower quarter neural tension, it's actually going to influence my cervical rotation or my upper quarter neural dynamics. Um, cervical rotation is great for picking up some of that neural stuff. It's also a great rib mobility assessment and breathing assessment. So if I live again in this chronic holding pattern of maybe forward elevated shoulders, I'm going to get first, second, third rib elevated, forwardly pitched. It's going to then limit my cervical rotation. Again, if my cervical rotation is limited, I know I have poor shoulder postural alignment. I likely have poor breathing where I'm an accessory breather, where I'm breathing from more my chest than my belly. Um, and it's just a great indicator of posture. I guarantee when you look at somebody the next time they have maybe the standard forward head posture or the upper cross syndrome, they're going to lack cervical rotation. It also, you usually lack cervical rotation if you have cervical genic headaches. So maybe your C1, C2, which is the top of your neck, where most of the rotation of your spine occurs, your cervical spine, about 50 to 60% of it, and also a region that commonly leads to headaches. If you lack that cervical rotation, you might be able to pick up kind of an upper cervical dysfunction as well. And then the last thing that you could put in this sequencing would be getting into shoulder abduction. So I usually do this as a passive seative test where I'm bringing the shoulder into a little bit of posterior depression down and back, and I'm assessing the pure plane passive abduction. It's an awesome upper extremity neural dynamic test where you'll see people at 40 degrees of abduction get tingling into their fingers. Excuse me. Or you'll see people technically you should be able to get your arm all the way up to your ear without any sort of restriction. It's also a test of glenohumeral mobility, particularly the ability of the glenohumeral joint to glide posterior and inferior, as well as a little bit medial. Again, it's going to be a test of scapular and thoracic rib mobility. If I can't abduct, my scapula can be adherent to my rib cage. I could lack rib cage depression and rotation. Um, and again, it's often a good indicator of breathing or that state of living in compression or inhalation or expansion exhalation. Um, 
So again, cervical rotation and abduction, I guarantee I can pick up if you have a labral pathology versus cervical radiculopathy versus maybe it's just a breathing pattern postural issue. Um, I then could build a PT-based program where I'm trying to reduce neural tension and improve cervical mechanical abilities. Or maybe it's for an overhead athlete where I know I need to maybe cue thoracic rib mobility and scapular stability to help improve overhead shoulder function. Um, but I think what my big goal here is less is more. You do not need to be doing seven different foot ankle tests to really figure out what's going on. Yes, there's a time and place to that. Maybe that's visit two, three, four. But on this initial evaluation assessment, you need to have these pillars that you're always looking at and that you're really fine-tuning. What I've seen from the experts is they can just watch somebody walk and pick up so much more info than a newer professional will be able to pick up either the PT or performance side of things. So again, these five tests that I think you can pick up pretty much everything in the human body, gait, standing toe touch, squat, cervical rotation, shoulder abduction. So hopefully you learned a little nugget or two or got some more insight into what you already know. Uh, leave feedback, leave comments, share the info. The more we help, the better. So appreciate it. And until next time, take care. All right. So we're back here with a discussion-based podcast. We're going to be talking about kind of a blend between hip mobility and stability with the topic being three ways to improve your hip mobility without stretching or mobilizing. Before we want to get into that, just hopeful everyone's having a good, as good as it can be, start to 2021. Uh, optimistic that coronavirus life as we know it will hopefully become a little bit more ordinary. My mental goal is by the end of summer 21, early fall 21. So hopefully we're in the home stretch here. You know, historically, pandemics usually have about an 18-month shelf life. So even though it currently feels like we've been doing this for years, everything is par for the course. And again, I'm hopeful things keep trending in the right direction. Um, we just had a cool podcast a couple of weeks ago with Pete Rumford, physical therapist, Southern California, kind of talking about core first strategies. Again, today we're going to be giving you some strategies to improve your, your hip health and function. Um, and a tons more fun content to come. DM, reach out, email. Reach out with questions, concerns, content you want to hear. Ideally, I want to be talking through interviewing people who are interesting topics or what you want to be hearing and things again where you can uh, practically apply right away and benefit from immediately um, but let's get into it so again topic today three ways to improve hip mobility without stretching so before we can get into some strategies which we will go over again three different drills that you can do is the idea of first understanding mobility or mechanical changes and stability or neuromuscular changes right and you really can't have one without the other but what I've learned with hips, which are supposed to be a mobile joint, and one of the yonder approaches to movement is, you know, usually you have mobile joints surrounded by 
stabilizing or stability joints. So your ankle's a mobile joint, your knee's more of a stability joint, your hip's a mobile joint, your lumbar spine's more of a stability joint. In that when these mobility joints are dysfunctional, it's usually because what's around them, there's dysfunction. So you lack hip mobility because you really lack lumbar and maybe knee stability. But point being is, is they can't really separate one from the other. And especially if you're a youth athlete, you're 40 or 50 or younger, it's very unlikely that you have true intraarticular within joint mechanical changes that have led to a loss of hip mobility. It's very unlikely that you have bone-on-bone -bone arthritis where you need to truly work on hip capsular mobility to improve your hip mobility. It's unlikely you have like a loose bone fragment or something in there that the hip itself is the cause of that mobility dysfunction. It does exist, but often not the first thing we should be thinking of. When we think about hip mobility, usually what's going on when you've lost hip mobility, it's this issue where the hip is in this guarded, tensioned state, and it's protecting itself. So the hip lacks stability and control. We're repetitively loading that hip. Then you load a joint that doesn't have that base of support, doesn't have that alignment, doesn't have that control, and the inherent reaction is to guard and to stiffen. You could do cupping, dry needling, Graston, uh, fill in the blank of any sort of mobility drill that you wanna do. You'll get immediate changes. You'll look like you're heading down the path of the right direction, but it'll all come back unless you inherently improve that stability, right? So mobility and working on mechanical things is a great tool, a great way to create a window to then stabilize, but usually the long-term solution is to get an appropriate stability in your hip. And so that's kind of what I wanted to talk through today, right? You could lose hip flexion range, you could have pinching in your hip with hip flexion and do drills to improve it, but what is the stability that's driving it? Likewise, you could look hip extension, you could have hip flexor tension, you could have a rectus femoris, you could have maybe apophysitis of pulling on that rectus and causing bone inflammation, but what's leading to that loss of hip extension range? And usually the patterns that we'll see is you'll see a loss of hip flexion, usually in combination with the loss of hip internal rotation. You usually see a loss of hip extension with a loss of hip external rotation. And those are just some general patterns that you'll see. Another pattern that you'll see is when one hip lacks flexion in one direction, let's say on the right side you lack flexion, usually on the contralateral opposite side you'll lose extension. So it's good to think about, ooh, if I'm stiff here I need to check the other hip, but also think about checking that other opposite pattern. And the body usually works in reciprocation like that because that's how we function, right, with gait and stairs and squats and lunges and so forth. So. To get right to the point here, what are three drills that you could do to improve mobility, right? And these drills, again, are going to be strength-based. You could use them as warm-ups before lower body strength. You could use them as like a warm-up drill for running. You could use them as recovery drills. I just did a bunch of squats. I know squats are my dysfunctional pattern. I'm going to use these after I squat to make sure I retrain and don't lead to inhibition, right? Inhibition meaning weakness leading to that guarded. You load a joint that's maybe a little too aggressive, it's gonna get guarded, it's gonna get inhibited, and you could use these kind of drills to make sure you lube the joint, make sure you keep retraining these patterns and ideally keep the motion you got. 
So let's say you have a loss of hip extension range, and this is something that I think is popular on social media, but I see as a big value, is instead of doing hip extension drills of kneeling hip extension stretches, a Thomas stretch where you're kind of hanging your leg off the edge of an ottoman or bed, um, instead of doing foam rolling on the front of the hip, is you could do a dead bug, right? You think of a dead bug exercise as being on your back, bringing one of your knees to your chest, lowering it back to the ground that idea of keeping a neutral spine so as your leg moves your pelvis and spine are rigid you think of this as a hip flexion stretch but you could do it in a negative way and do it off the edge of a bench or a box where you can increase that range into a negative and then that negative stabilizing exercise which would be an eccentric will actually create eccentric length to the anterior structures so again to be specific I lack hip extension on my left side. I'm gonna go onto my back off the edge of a bench or a box. I'm gonna bring both my knees to my chest. I could do it more in a locked out assisted pattern where I hold my right knee to my chest and I slowly lower my left leg, actively control the drop of my left leg, ensuring my spine is flush with the box or bench that I'm sitting on. My tempo I wanna do is about five or six seconds going as far down into that leg drop as I can without letting my low back arch off the, the box or the bench. If I'm actively with my hands pulling my right knee to my chest, it's gonna make it a lot easier to control my spine position. Once I get the hang of that, I could then actively control my right knee to my chest as I lower my left leg. And now I'm gonna be actively controlling more of that neutral spine as I lower my left leg. Once you get to the hang of that is you can even start loading it. I could put a kettlebell around my toes on my left leg. I could put a band around my leg. I could have someone manually resist, but now I'm doing resisted eccentric work into extension and you're gonna get quicker changes. You're gonna get strength as you change and you're doing neuromuscular control. So that'd be a way to improve hip extension without actually mobilizing extension. The next drill I wanna get into is working on hip flexion. So we talked about maybe a loss of hip extension on your left. What are ways that you can work on hip flexion on your right? Bringing that knee to your chest without truly just sitting there and stretching your hamstrings or pulling your knee to your chest. One of the ways that I like to do that is a squat. That might seem kind of weird to think about, but hopefully it's kind of common sense. If I have a loss of hip flexion, knee to chest, and I have a pinch with flexion, one of the best ways to load that pattern, create approximation or loading into the joint, create length with strength, is to squat. So the, one of the easiest ways to squat if you can get past the level of a body weight squat is to do a goblet squat, meaning hold the weight on the front of your chest. It could be a dumbbell, it could be a goblet. Another great way to load is to create a little of assistance below. So I could put a weight on my chest, do a goblet squat, but also create assistance below by putting a prop underneath my heels. So if I take away the load of dorsiflexion or make it easier to dorsiflex, inherently with a triple flexion pattern, it will make it easier to flex or bend my hips. If I put a load on the front of my chest, that makes it easier to counterbalance the squat pattern. It makes it easier to maintain an upright trunk as I squat. If I am trying to flex my hip, I wanna think about squatting with less hinge in my hip and more of that upright vertical pattern of my trunk or torso. 
So again, I can have a weight on my chest, a prop underneath my heels, and then the next thing to think about is tempo, right? So we just did eccentrics with the leg drop to improve extension. We can also do eccentrics as we go into a squat depth to improve flexion of my hip. So the tempo that I like to do here is called an eccentric isometric. I got all this squat set up that we just talked about. I'm doing a four or five count on the way down. At the bottom of the squat, I'm doing a four or five count hold at the bottom. There's the isometric. And then I'm doing a one or two second ascent. Slow down, hold, normal tempo on the up. I'm doing lengthening and strengthening on the way down. I'm doing a prolonged hold at the bottom of the squat to get prolonged tissue tension, but also getting neurological feeding or control into the pattern over time, which will help my brain figure it out, and then a normal tempo on the way up. You'd be impressed if you do four or five of these with that tempo. Before you do it, you bring your knee to the chest. You might have a pinchy hip in supine or on your back. Do the goblet with load. Go back into the pinchy hip position. You'll notice the range improves, the pinching goes away, and you're getting strength, right? This is the kind of stuff that has longer lasting changes versus someone doing soft tissue on your hamstring or doing a strap assisted mobilization. Keep it simple, train into the patterns of dysfunction, train with education and tempo and knowledge and not pushing into sharp pain and you'll get strength and you'll get longer lasting changes. So we talked about a hip extension way with the leg drop. We talked about kind of a goblet squat for knee flexion. The other thing that we tend to lose, sorry, hip flexion, the other thing we tend to lose are rotations. So with rotations, internal and external, that's a great way to work the entire hip capsule. Just like with the shoulder, rotation, for every degree of rotation, you get twice the amount of flexion or extension. So rotation is a great starting point. And usually you're not gonna maybe go into this mobilization to start to prove rotation, there'd be some other ways. But a drill that I love to set up rotation is getting into that 90-90 shin box. So if you don't know what that is, you're on the ground, you have your legs in these 90 degree angles. One's pitched in front of you where your hip is flexed and then your knees at a 90 degree angle. The other leg's pitched behind you, your hip's more extended with your knee at a 90 degree angle and you create these kind of opposite hip flexion 90 degree angles. You can use your hands to help hold you up, but your trunk is vertical with the legs in these opposite 90 degree positions. What I love about this is it takes you into that reciprocation posture. Reciprocation meaning one leg in flexion, the other in extension. What I also love about this is the inherent trunk stability it's gonna to take to hold yourself up. So I've got reciprocal leg positions and I'm requiring core trunk stability to hold myself up. Simply being there is a great starting point. Maybe I'm using blocks to help me hold me up or sticks and just working on diaphragmatic belly breathing and working on breathing to improve my core stability, improve my neuromuscular control, and also to improve relaxation into this position. Let's say you can get into that 90-90 shin box fairly well with ease. The next thing I love to do are then hip pivots in and out of this. So my leg that's more behind me in that extension internal rotation pattern I'll lower and lift that leg and do active hip rotations with load into the joint. I'll do 15 to 20 rotations. Here I'm not doing that extension with prolonged hold. I'm doing more active pivots, active pumping, and trying to, again, give myself a low load, high rep, neuromuscular control to build better endurance and control. 
With the front leg, you could do the similar thing, but it's a little bit trickier to get into that end range hip flexion external rotation. So here I might do hip hinges where I'm almost going into in and out of like a pigeon drill where that hinging of my hip will inherently cause more flexion external rotation. I can play with different trunk angles, trying to wind up my trunk into more external and internal, but I love these positions to do, again, hip rotations in both external and internal at different tempos. I can eventually start loading with bands. Um, I can even get dynamic and go from this shiny uh, 9090 shin box to like a weird tall kneel position. And there's so many great variations here. But this is just a great posture that I love to work on postural stability, but again, that ability to control hip rotation. So again, this is active hip rotation where I can then do a pre-potest of looking at a Faber figure four position and see if I'm getting immediate changes without stretching. So those are three different drills that you can do to improve hip mobility without actually stretching or doing passive soft tissue elongation techniques of whatever variety you like to do. I'm not saying that's the end all be all, but when it comes to mobility, we need to go on that pathway or trajectory to think about improving stability to improve mobility. Hopefully you got a couple little nuggets there. Reach out with questions. Again, more fun content to come. And have a good day.